Hello, this is John Huary, and welcome to another episode of Community Intelligence, where we explore how leaders engage and build community. Joining me for this episode is the Executive Director of the Pat Brown Institute for Public Affairs at Cal State LA, Dr. Rafe Sunshine, who is working to unleash the power of participation. We met at Homegirl Cafe, the restaurant component of the innovative social enterprise, Homeboy Industries, that provides hope, training, and support to formerly gang-involved and previously incarcerated men and women. Rafe and I discussed his work researching and developing city coalitions and how they can politically empower marginalized communities. So I called Yale. Were you still a student? <laughs> Hard to say. But I called my advisor and I said, you know, I think I want to come back and finish my dissertation. And he laughed. They all laughed. And uh, they said, sure. So I did my dissertation out here on Tom Bradley. And what, was, what was your thesis? Well, it was not a very good dissertation. Oh. <laughs> um, I didn't know how to do a dissertation. But... I used the research of the dissertation to really do what I really wanted to do, which was talk about racial coalition politics. And that became my first book, Politics in Black and White. And I wanted to challenge the notion that was very dominant on the East Coast, and especially in academia, that interracial coalitions died with the end of the civil rights movement. And I believed that that was dead wrong. And I had come out here to a city nobody was studying. People didn't even think it was a city in political science and found that Tom Bradley had built a dominating African-American Jewish coalition that the literature said could not possibly exist. And when you say the literature, this is it, I'm gonna just guess here, the East Coast literature? I mean, is there an East Coast, West Coast divide that helped inform this misinformation? In the literature, that would be that would give too much credit to the literature. There was no West Coast side of it. Political science has been, and less so today, but back then was very much New York City, Chicago, especially in the area of urban politics. From the standpoint of race, it wasn't very highly developed. Sociology was much more developed, and that's why I ended up using a lot of sociology literature in my work. Um, but they didn't think LA or California was even worth having part of the conversation. So I was having a ball, I mean, because so I was were, an upstart. And you were on the forefront because today, LA is the model for sort of Southern California for politics and community and, yeah. and the differences in people and how you come together to solve yep. problems. It was, uh, it was funny because I was trained on the East Coast as a political scientist, but <clears throat> exercised my work on the West Coast. But I mean, I certainly respected the literature, but I thought LA and the Western experience had to be incorporated into the study of racial politics or we were never gonna get anywhere. Because interracial coalitions had pretty much evaporated in New York City, just collapsed completely. And so people were giving up on it. And that would have been a terrible mistake. And as you see in the recent elections going on, where African-American candidates were doing very, very well, <clears throat> it's partly in coalition with other communities, not just whites, but other communities. And those lessons can continue to be quite relevant. So go back then. You, you seem to be, what you've said so far is that you've been interacting with uh, African-Americans in leadership positions. As part of your research, did you actually get 
a little bit more granular into the neighborhoods, into the people, into the community organizing groups. Oh yeah. How did you get that information? How did you? What's that process to as the the white guy from Jersey oh. to come into South LA or African American community to understand what's happening? Well, I, I wouldn't overestimate my understanding. Right. I mean, I'm pretty humble about these things. I, I know mostly what I don't know, but that's a good place to start. But I also found coming to LA that. People were just always very nice to me and very welcoming. And as long as I was working in a campaign or doing something useful, um, I got the great opportunity in the 90s to spend some time with Karen Bass, who was running the community coalition against uh, regarding substance abuse and training. This was, she was trying to close down liquor stores in South Central LA, then called South Central. I just found that the barriers, while significant in L.A., don't compare to the barriers on the East Coast, where when a stranger walks into a neighborhood, everybody knows they're a stranger. I never felt that here, but I don't think I had any special qualities. I mean, I just think that people were just very interested that I was interested. I think that's the key, though. You were interested in them. You weren't there to observe in a uh, spectator way. You were there to be truly curious and interested. Yeah. And, you know, people, I just learned stuff just by reading from my book. I went to UCLA to look. They had the archives of the L.A. Sentinel and the California Eagle. And I just read every issue for like 40 years. That was, They're weeklies. Yeah. Um, these are the African-American the African newspapers. Yeah. And other than the fact that I would get diverted into the sports page, because whenever anybody does archival research, they either either sports or entertainment, you have to remember that you're there for a purpose. But, um, but one of the things that just was so shattering to watch was how many how many cover stories were about. I'm not sure how that I'm not sure how that's going to play with all this scraping on the floor. That's all right. It's, it's, it's we're keeping it ambience, real. Ambiance. Well, one of the things that was kind of shattering in some ways was how every week, especially in the Eagle, but often in the Sentinel, there'd be a cover story of someone who had been beaten by the police dramatic photography and you think well that's a journalism that you're not seeing in the LA Times you know you turn over to the LA Times and they're talking about what was going on in Europe and uh, you know the whole of administration and it's as if so you could actually see putting them next to each other really until Watts that the Times has no interest at all in South Central LA so so of course Chief Parker is able to operate with impunity because he's a hero to to the larger community but you know you read the papers and you realize there's a whole other world of significance here and how does that play out today i mean what's your what's your filter for media today knowing what you know because you have first-hand experience of the historical bias well for all the complaints people have it's way better than it was then i mean until to otis chandler took charge of the times it was a terrible paper. It was awful. We no longer depend on the Times, which, by the way, remains, despite the horrifying ownership stuff they had until recently, it's still a very good paper. You can't kill the Times. They tried, and it's going to make a big comeback now. It's great. But now, because I think of all the travails the Times had and all the changes in local media, there's all kinds of people doing interesting stuff all over town. There's blogs, there's public radios doing great stuff. But how do Even you commercial radio. 
But but do you see a source that is uh, truly giving the full picture, or is your or is your approach to look at multiple sources like how do you how do you inform yourself? Because there's so many sources. I read everything and I don't watch cable news. So. So how many papers do you subscribe to? Well, I subscribe to the Times, and I read all the other papers online. So I follow the New York Times, the Washington Post, I follow the Atlantic, I follow, um, you know, news magazine magazines. Newsweek and Time are kind of evaporating, but in their place, those opinion magazines like the New Yorker and everybody are doing great work. They're they're getting more people out here in L.A. than they used to. Now every once in a while, the New York Times, God bless them. <laughs> Even though they have some wonderful reporters out here who do great reporting, they have to send somebody out to do a culture story about what idiots we are. And it's, it's almost like they, the editor says it's been six months. Let's do it again. So they sent somebody out a few months ago, and I actually was on Twitter about this, which I spend a lot of time doing Twitter. I, I like Twitter. <laughs> and I said that I thought that it was satire. I thought it was a satire on the New York Times article I thought it would be brilliant. I thought it was like the, or the onion or something. And he said, we all sit in our cars and we don't talk to each other and we're idiots and we eat, you know, we, we don't care about anything. We don't care, get out of our house. We don't know our neighbors. And I, th and I thought, who is this fool? <laughs> but it's the generic fool. I mean, you can put a different name on it. There's less of that than there used to be is a long way of saying. And there's doing some really... You know, you got Jennifer Medina and Adam Nagorny, who are excellent reporters, and turn up really good stuff. So, I don't think, I think there's tremendous numbers of sources of information out here. And I'm very careful what I read, though, because, you know, two-thirds of it turns out to not be true. And I'm also always looking for things that we as an institute can weigh in on promote a discussion of so if I see an interesting discussion I'll call our staff in and we'll say maybe we should do something well and, and just recently what is it last year you guys really took an interest in uh, the what we call the gateway cities southeast Los Angeles mm -hmm. um, so Los Angeles is a huge county the largest population in the country uh, 10 mil over 10 million residents in LA County with diverse neighborhoods that are sometimes just blocks apart right. but sometimes groups of neighborhoods that are in areas uh, that are very interesting and diverse in them themselves and very misunderstood by the rest of the population. So you guys said, we're going to shine a, a, a spotlight on an area that is uh, an interesting area. So tell me about Southeast LA, the gateway cities, well, and why you're there. We didn't start it, in a sense. Really, the California Community Foundation came to us, and then in association with the Weingart Foundation, wanted to do a big initiative in Southeast LA. And Southeast LA is, you know, a number of about 10, 11 cities south and east of downtown LA. And so this area, which when I, when Maxine Waters ran for the assembly in 76, Southgate was part of her district. But in those days, Southgate was all white, very conservative. And in fact, Maxine put me in charge of winning Southgate for her, <laughs> which, I, which we did. But they weren't used to having a, a black candidate coming and, and making their case, but, but she did successfully. Well, over time, those white working class communities, middle class and working class, turned into Latino working class and middle class communities. But in the process, 
they became rather isolated. Um, these are areas with large immigrant populations, with um, <coughs> uh, a younger population, but with a lot of assets in the shadow of the big metropolis. Okay? And we see this now a lot in urban politics, which is areas outside the urban core with large populations of color, but don't have access to all the institutions, including the LA Times. The LA Times was covering Southeast LA because it was covering Bell's scandal. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, right. it wasn't getting regular coverage the way East Side. Right. So Boyle Heights, everybody knows Boyle Heights, right? So the idea, which really came to us from CCF, it's a really powerful idea. Why have these little cities just operate on their own, one against each other in competition? One thing, it's easy to play them against each other. We'll, we'll run a train line through your city. That'll make you happy. Then we'll have to like buy, you know, work with the other cities. Why not create a regional concept of something called Southeast LA, and then it would have a bigger voice? And that's what's been happening. So the idea has been of the Pat Brennan Institute to help generate research and conversation about the region. Not about Bell, not about Cudahy, but about the region. So generally, this, there are you know, 50,000, 40,000 each city, 100,000, somewhere in there. What's the whole area population? What are we talking about? Let's so we're talking about around 750,000 people, and that's a pretty significant yeah, plot. Three quarters of a million people. And when we put that information out to places like Metro, huh? which is trying to reach out in the Southeast, we want them thinking of those 750,000, not how's Bell doing, how's Cudahy doing. So what's the, what's the strategy to get people with divergent interests? You know, you have city leaders who are beholden to their constituencies, right? But then you're asking them to work collectively. How do you make the case that it's worthwhile? And how do you balance competing interests? Well, you reframe the conversation by saying you can all do better if there's something bigger. And it helps to bring in elected officials who represent the area but not the individual city. So Speaker Anthony Rendon, who lives in, pa in Paramount in the area, very dedicated to the Southeast, he convenes a lot of the elected officials, local council members, and, and has them, Supervisor Hilda Solis, plays a very supportive role. And we basically are able to say Look, we have, we, these two politicians, have a big area. The foundations have a big area. There's nonprofit organizations working together in something called the Sella Collaborative that we're a member of. So you'd be amazed. People actually take to it. Plus, in addition, in these cities that have been, had a, had a lot of governance problems, there's a lot of new young council members getting elected. And what do they, they look like, uh, the future? Or they look mm -hmm. like the past? They look like the future. You see, when you come in new, this is the new idea, and people grab onto it and feel comfortable with it. If, if you've been around a long, long time, you might say, well, this is not going to be, I'm not going to be comfortable. But then you start to see other people grabbing onto it. We, every year we hold a summit and get two to 300 people, including community leaders, regular folks from the community. It's getting a big buzz. And the foundation world's pretty excited about it because it's a way to see their dollars getting used in a community, not just dumping money in, but very, very carefully 
nurturing relationships. So let's say the trajectory continues five, ten years from now. What's different in that community because of this work? You know how at City Hall people say, what's up with the San Fernando Valley? They don't say what's up with Reseda. When the day comes, which is starting to happen, where Metro, other organizations, the county supervisors say, we haven't heard from Southeast LA. What has been happening is South LA, Southeast LA has been sort of part of the gateway cities. Well, that doesn't work. This has its own piece. People will say, what about the San Gabriel Valley, right? That's what we want people to say about the Southeast. Now, there's a school board race um, underway in District 5, which is going to generate tremendous interest in the Southeast. It's a very funny district. Half of it is in Northeast, half is in the Southeast, and it has a strip. This so is Rep Rodriguez's district. Right, and this is, this is LAUSD. LAUSD. And it and actually goes outside the city limits of Los Angeles? Yeah. And at, remember, LAUSD has 20% beyond the city of LA. So you've got a lot of Southeast students who are in LAUSD, and this seat happens to be the balance wheel of the contending factions on the school board. Well, that's going to shine a light on the southeast, and we're going to help shine a light on the southeast through. We don't we don't have a horse in the race, but we're going to do our best to get people thinking. But even just getting the word southeast out there is having an impact, and people are starting to say, "Well, yeah, I'm." You know, it's the reverse in L.A. People used to say, "I live in Van Nuys," right? We want people to start saying, I'm from the Southeast. And then if you're from Huntington Park and Maywood, you're both from the Southeast. And the connection. You don't have to not have incorporated cities. You just have to have it that not be the be all and end all of everything. It's, it's part of this uh, building of identity, community identity and community belonging. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. what, that's what essentially you're talking about. But you're also gonna need some of the institutional strengths that LA City has, even though people don't appreciate it very much. You have a major newspaper, a world-class newspaper, that at least pays some attention to City Hall, not the way the old Herald Examiner used to, but at least it tries. You have an ethics commission that can monitor <coughs> campaigns and ethics. You have civic institutions, civic organizations that gravitate to City Hall. We want them to gravitate to the southeast a bit and say, what would be, what would be a useful way to bring some of these things so that you have some of the benefits, you know, more media coverage, better media coverage. And in this world of such diverse media, there's no reason some of it's going to start with bloggers, you know, who come in and say, this is a really interesting place. Look at the young people here. I mean, there's so many young people coming up there. We want to bring in scholars who or it took 30 years to get scholars to study LA. It's not gonna take that much longer to get them to study Southeast LA once they're here. So what is it, you know, I define civic engagement much broader than maybe some would. Uh, I talk about civic engagement as being actively involved in your community and understanding the way your community or society that you live in works. And it's very local to me. It's not about Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. That's part of it, uh -huh. but it's not all of it. It's not just about getting out the vote. 
it's part of it. That's an indicator. But it's about belonging to a community. It's about belong civic engagement to me is volunteering. It's about being on a board. I'm, I don't mean to, do I'm defining my definition. What's your definition of civic engagement? Well, we have a phrase at the Pat Brennan Institute, inform, engage, inspire. Okay. And you can't do the third and the second without the first. In fact, you really don't want to inspire people who are, don't, not, informed. are not informed. <laughs> and that doesn't mean level of education. It means understanding their world. And understanding your world gives you the courage to participate. So Courage, that's a really good point. Because you know, people are afraid. People are afraid of what they don't know and don't understand. And most of politics, this is a very complicated system in our country. Most, most democracies are a lot simpler than ours. And I taught intro American government for my 29 years at Cal State Fullerton. Usually, in addition to my upper division classes, I taught a big freshman class of 220 students who were never gonna take another political science class. It was the state requirement that they had to take it. And I took that as a, as a mission from God. Yeah, I was gonna say, you, know? you were their last stop. Oh. Loved it, and all of my colleagues felt the same way about that class. So when I got to Cal State LA, I wasn't teaching anymore, and was approached by Mayor Garcetti's office after, not long after his election, saying he wanted to do civic education for the city based on a program he had done in his council office to educate people about local government. So we cooked up the Civic University, or Civic U, which we've been running ever since. As you know, we teach neighborhood councils, we teach nonprofit organizations. We've, we've taught all city employees. We did an all city employees presentation on it. Actually, the first group the mayor asked us to do was the mayor's staff. Yeah. Which was kind of funny, except there's a lot of turnover at City Hall. Right. So, and fortunately, you know, I did have a lot of charter experience because of the Charter Commission. And then the city government book is, was written with the League of Women Voters of Los Angeles. And <clears throat> that is used by employees for promotional exams. And so we had a great base of information, but we really wanted to make it accessible. Now we teach it to high school students in LA. So we have and really- who's we? Is it literally you? The Pat Brennan Institute. Well, I teach it, but with some help from my colleagues, including Raquel Beltran, our associate director, we'll probably have more instructors as the program grows, but I'm really the main instructor. But we also have discussion groups going along with it that um, we've had the Center for Nonprofit Management help us with and the mayor's office and others. The point of the matter is, if you give people useful information about government, they want to put it to use. When they're confused, it's hard. And most people are confused about government. Most people don't know what the CAO does in the city of LA, who turns out to be other than the police chief, probably the most important appointed official in the city and is happy to talk to people about budgets and programs and things like that. They don't know <coughs> what the mayor can and can't do. They don't know the mayor can't fix the schools because the mayor doesn't have any control over the schools. But I the find mayor... Some, I find a, sometimes people don't even know who the mayor is. They may live in Burbank and not know that Eric Arcetti isn't their mayor. Because we, right. we have, in Los Angeles County, there's 88 cities, the biggest being the city of Los Angeles, that only represents 40% of the people in the county. There's 87 other cities. And conveniently, for our lack of information, the city and county have the same name. Correct. So what does it mean for someone to be 
So I use the word civically literate. No, what it, how do we get people to be more literate in civics? Well, besides, I mean, you're one man on a mission with an organization that colleagues. More people have right. to be doing this. We have to get civics back into the schools. But I'll tell you, if civics comes back into the schools, it better be more interesting than when I took it when <laughs> I was a kid. Well, I never took it because I'm of a different generation. Well, so in my generation, civics, yeah, oh, we learned how a bill becomes a law. But fortunately, I had a teacher named Mr. Huntoon, Harold Huntoon, who encouraged us to debate and argue. And we would debate with him, and, and it was back and forth, and that's what I remember from the class. But we learned about the separation of powers. and Well, we don't teach people how an ordinance becomes an ordinance, and it gets a hearing and goes back to committee. We say, why does an ordinance become an ordinance? Who has power? You really have to train people about power, authority, roles, because what you want to say with, with our Roosevelt High School students that we've done a lot of work with, we asked them to pick a problem and they said there's a street light out there and people are getting hit by cars because it's a sudden right-hand turn and there's no visibility. So we spent quite a bit of time saying, so who makes a decision about those lights? And at first you start with no, you know, we have no idea. And after a while you're starting to talk about the, the Department of Transportation, the traffic officers, you're talking about the LAPD, you're talking about the city council. Who can you call to build a fire under whoever has to make that decision? Well, this one reports to the GM, the GM reports to the mayor. Now the city council can raise holy hell, a member can. So before you know it, they're starting to think there's a lot of illegal dumping in our area where who in the sanitation department controls that so that's why you don't need to know how a bill becomes a law nobody cares i don't care <laughs> don't tell schoolhouse rock <laughs> you know, that's their signature right it's true it, it, it that's a really great uh, observation that it's about the power and authority and roles versus the process because i always talk about there's the process that's the official process you submit a request online and it gets through this or then there's the unofficial process you call the you know staffer, or even better, you call the donor who knows the elected official. You t you know those are the things that we talk about when we talk about true understanding of civic literacy. And and what do you think it'll take? I mean, more people have to teach it, but we've got 10 million people here. Not all 10 million need to know it, but I've been a good 10 to 20 percent do. You don't you have know? to do it all at once. You have to do it. Talk about it. I push back, I, you know, I do a lot of media interviews, and I push back when, when I hear, when a reporter says, isn't it all just politics? Well, that doesn't help people. <clears throat> and I push back and say, well, you're in a democracy, it's politics. You can't have democracy without politics, and that means you may fight over roles. You may have two people with opposed roles who have a different point of view. It's not the end of the world. And I, you know, I heard people say on the news this morning, you know, it's terrible that they can't reach an agreement on the border wall. Well, they disagree. They're fighting it out. And they said, well, you know, what's the voter to make of this? Well, I want to teach people to say, well, let's, let's outline the positions. You don't have to split the baby. King Solomon pointed out you don't have to split the baby. Maybe you'll pick a side. That's okay. I don't care which side you pick, but pick a side. Um, so some of it is helping the media see that certain messages that people put out 
without even thinking they're doing it. Like, it's all nonsense. Well, oh, God, they're yelling. They're yelling. I want to know what they're yelling about. I don't want to know that they're yelling. You know, and I, I don't mind people being impolite in politics. Are they polite in politics? Um, <clears throat> Can polite people get things done in politics? It's hard to say. I mean, there's a time and place for everything. Decorum. There is, but, you know, that's greatly overrated, I think. And it all depends how high the stakes are. You know, if you're fixing a traffic light, you probably don't need to yell at each other. But if someone's been ignoring your request for a year, you might want to raise up the decibel level just a little bit. So anyway, we're trying to get, we're trying to start with the high school students, the neighborhood councils. These are all people who are like eager. And then, you know, one tells another and then they tell another and somebody tells another. You can't do this stuff all at once. How do we get more people to take on the, the leadership of dealing with it? You're the Pat Brown Institute at Cal State LA. You're one entity. I know you're not, I know your staff, it's a great team, but you're not enough to even cover, probably not even enough to really do what needs to be done in Southeast LA because of the size. But how do we get others? How do we get other institutions? You know, you're not the only institution in town, um, both academic or civic. How do we get them to take this up? Who knows? <laughs> you're supposed to have the answer. Now that we are working with the mayor, the mayor talks about it all the time. And he, he's turned out though. In, a 20, in 2022, for God's yeah, sake. Yeah, true, though, but he won't always be there, is what I'm saying. I know. I, I'm so much less worried than you are, John. You see, to me... Tell me why. Because these things take time, and we'll pass the baton to somebody else. They'll pick it up. Somebody won't pick it up. Somebody will. My guess is the high school will start picking it up. High school teachers would really enjoy this kind of teaching. If they didn't get in too much trouble... Um, I need to get some more of this wonderful coffee. Oh, yeah, I see your cup is empty. We'll My cup is empty. But um, see, this is not the kind of stuff I worry about, John. I mean, there's so much to so worry about. What in the do world. you worry about in the world, within your control, in this oh, community? Oh, I worry that we won't grapple with really big problems because we can't get past some of the problems we're dealing with. Like, we can't get to climate change because we've got so many other things going on. And so I would argue that the issue of civic literacy and civic engagement addresses those fundamentals so we can get to the bigger issues. Let's put it this way. If we wait to deal with climate change until everybody has civic literacy, we're never going to get it done. And in general, you can do more than one thing at a time. I think the best you can do in this world, in in the little piece of earth that you occupy, is do what you think should be done. Tell everybody about it and see where it goes. We might be wrong, we might be doing it the wrong way, so people don't have to do what we're doing. But you've got to make a commitment that even people who are not in the social sciences need to have civic literacy. And there's a big battle about this. I mean, you load up all these science courses for people because they're great to have. Then it turns out science is in the political arena. Well, this year, scientists are running for office in great numbers. That's a wonderful thing. But they should all be getting civic literacy as part of their college education, even though there may not appear to be time. It may appear to be a luxury. But the truth is, you know, the old Greek philosophers basically said that people are political animals, that there's something inherent in us that 
wants to be engaged in this, that it's not unnatural. It is not like trying to get me to play the tuba. But all you have to do is come halfway and say, here's how this matters. Don't lecture. Um, don't go around complaining about how young people don't know anything compared to how much older people know. Give me a break. And I mean, young people are on their phone checking out <clears throat> 10 different news items during your lecture about how illiterate they are civically. They're just, so find out, find out where people are and grab them in what they're naturally interested in, but then make the connection to the civic arena. But don't tell people they're civically illiterate. Fair enough. Guess what? People don't actually like that. No, they I don't. I know this may come as a surprise <laughs> to everybody. So I am, I am ready to go to our lightning round. Just quick, whatever comes to mind, okay? Who's a leader that's influenced you in your work? Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Wow. <laughs> go big. Uh, what's a charter idea that didn't make it into the city's charter that you think should be there? Burroughs. Burroughs. What do students need to know about engaging in a metropolis like Los Angeles? It's not as hard as you think. What's your method to learn about a community or an issue? Read, visit, talk to people, and listen. Uh, what has been the most civically literate elected official you've known in your work? Someone who really knows the system. Ron Deaton. Uh. You know who Ron Deaton is? I do. He's okay. the former CLA, head of DWP. Yes. Uh, what's the best quality in a, in a collaborative partnership to achieve good collaboration? Because um, you're doing a lot of that in Southeast LA. What's that good quality? Friendly listening. Hmm. What advice do you give 25-year-old Rafe? Just try all kinds of stuff that doesn't make any sense. Don't take the don't don't sit there and say I can't do this because it's going to set my career back. Nobody cares about what your career at 25 is going to look so different when you're 45. Yep. Try some things. Um, what Learn so, the type. So last question: what <laughs> what so far has been your proudest professional moment? The passage of the LA City Charter in 1999. Ray, thanks so much for joining us here on Community Intelligence. Looking forward to talking with you again soon about this all the great. This was great work. fun, John. Thanks Thank for you. having me. Let's get you some of that coffee. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for listening to Community Intelligence. And for more information on this and other episodes, visit our website at stratoscope.com. At Stratoscope, we provide community intelligence services to businesses, nonprofits, and government agencies. Let us know how we can help you.